morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good, I hope. I want to clarify a couple of things from announcements before we get into the Word today. Uh, First thing, you're not actually invited to my house for the Super Bowl. It's not not that I don't love you. It's just I don't want to watch the Super Bowl with you, okay? Uh, I don't even particularly want to watch it with my kids, but that's no offense. Um, Second, I don't... I don't actually think Jesus is going to be at WBR tomorrow. Now, his presence, I, he'll be there. His presence will be there. But, and Beth Haynes might be there. Uh, Russell Bivin, probably there. Um, I still say go. After five, and we're going to look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Um, we are still uh, in our series called Great Expectations, working through the, um, the beautiful sermon that is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Um, when somebody's got it, we say amen. All right, let's, let's do this. Uh, the text says this. says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak to us today. I'm grateful for uh, worship this morning. I'm believing that um, your spirit is here. In the same way that you will be with them tomorrow, I know that you're here with us now, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. Um, God, um, those of us who are faithful, we show up to church often, and yet we um, also uh, oftentimes uh, leave this place the same way that we came in. And I I pray today that you would be um, the change agent in somebody's life. I pray that your word would be a change agent in somebody's life, that you would speak and that people would walk out the doors um, differently. I pray that you would lead um, some people um, to overcome some things. I pray that you would lead some people to forgive some things. I pray that you would uh, lead some people just to work through some stuff that maybe um, they've needed to work through for a long time. Uh, God, we love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, on our trip to Nicaragua a couple of months ago, we went and visited the Messiah Volcano. And uh, the Messiah Volcano is it's an active volcano in Nicaragua. Its last eruption, uh, I think, was in 2008. But it was a small ash eruption, but um, it was an eruption nonetheless. And uh, Masai, as a, as a city, is just a few miles south of the capital city of Managua. And we went to see this thing uh, in the evening. Um, so it was night, it was getting dark, and then it became dark. So we really didn't get to get like the full picture or full scale of the whole volcano. But what we could see was the rim and um, you could see down and, and you could see like the eeriness of, uh, uh, of the lava at the bottom. And there are several different places, um, like several different overlooks or platforms that you can uh, walk up on and you can kind of like stare down into, uh, into this 
uh, lava. And I'm telling you, like I walked up on those uh, overlooks and I'm like looking down and it, it's beautifully destructive. I mean, you look down there and it's just like this uh, orange glow and, and, and smoke is blowing up. I imagine it's, it's, it's blowing all the time and, and the lava is just turning over and it's boiling up. I mean, it kind of moves like, a, like really thick ocean waves. It's just super active, much more active than I ever imagined it, it would be. And I stood there and um, in my own like untrained mind, I found myself thinking, man, this thing looks like it could blow any minute. I mean, this thing just looks like it's ready to go. Church, for me, the best way to define what I think Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is to offer you the image of the volcano and to say this. Most people only focus on the eruptions, but Jesus is concerned with the pressure building at the core. Most people only focus on the eruptions. Jesus is deeply concerned with the pressure building at our cores. Religion worries about appearances. Jesus worries about our hearts. How are we doing on the inside? Because it doesn't matter if everything looks okay on the outside if we're not doing well on the inside. You know, we live in a culture that is prone to suppression. Like, I think we're taught at a, at a pretty young age that we're supposed to suppress most of our emotions, like especially feelings of, of fear, shame, sin, guilt, failure. We're supposed to do what we can to push those things down, like the ugly parts of us. We're supposed to keep those things hidden. We're supposed to keep them private. These are our secrets. But here's the thing, church. The more we push those things down, the more the pressure builds up. And eventually, things are going to explode. Eventually, the volcano will erupt. Eventually, the scandal occurs, and we're left standing there in the middle of our own wreckage, you know, wondering, how, how did we get here? Like, how, how, is this, how is this my life? How could a bad decision I made or a, a bad act that I committed, how could it have such a negative effect on so many different people? Now, some of you know what I'm talking about uh, because some of you have already walked through that kind of thing. Like, you've already, you've already walked through the eruption. You've already been through the thing where, like, your reputation was destroyed. You've already walked through the thing where in your head you thought, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to recover from, from this. And if that's you, or even if you're currently walking through that kind of thing now, I want you to hear me say this. It's all grace. It's all grace. Thomas Merton, in his poem, When in the Soul of the Serene Disciple, says this, and I think it's incredibly beautiful. He says, it was a lucky wind that blew away his halo with his cares, a lucky sea that drowned his reputation. Merton is saying, if you've walked through something like that, good on you. Because at least now you no longer have to worry about carrying around that stupid-looking halo. At least now you don't have to worry about who your real friends are because they're the people who are still around. At least now you can finally for once in your life be the real you. Like no more shadows, no more 
pretense, no more games. Religion creates actors. Jesus creates followers. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference. Religion and the law tends to create people who want to appear to be holy. Jesus wants people who are actually holy. Now, the problem for many of us is that we only go to Jesus when we need his help picking up the pieces. The problem for a lot of us is that we only turn to him when we got a problem that we need his help solving. Like we only go to him, we wait until after our world falls apart. We wait until after uh, the volcano erupts. But listen to me, church. Jesus is in the business of formation and reformation. I mean, have you ever considered that maybe he wants to go ahead and start the process of reshaping your heart now before everything falls apart. Like maybe he wants to begin working those changes in you now. He wants to begin healing your inner struggles before they become public failures. Is it possible? This is what I'm trying to say. I really believe that if we will open up our hearts to Jesus if we will surrender our lives to him and allow him to change us from the inside out, I believe he can save us from ourselves. And I think he can prevent a lot of future really bad decisions. We turn, too many of us turn to Jesus after the affair, but he wants to address the lust. We turn to Jesus after the abuse. He wants us to deal with the anger. We turn to him after the nervous breakdown. He wants to calm our anxious hearts. Most people only focus on the eruption, but Jesus is concerned with the pressure building at the core. You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, I stood up here and I just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's the first time I've been in ministry a long, a long time now. It's the first time I've ever done anything like that. Like just stood up and, and read the word. And honestly, it was, it was great for me. Um, uh, it, it, it taught me a lot, but it's also the first time I've ever walked um, off of the stage or off the platform and knew for a fact that I hadn't said anything that I shouldn't say. And, uh, and I got to tell you, that, that felt really good, knowing you're preaching God's word, nothing more and, and nothing less. Um, an initial reading of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, especially for those of you who may have never heard it in that way um, straight through, I think an initial reading of the Sermon on the Mount can be um, very convicting. Like, I, I think really the first time we read the text all the way through, it can be uh, very condemning. Um, even as I, I was reading it up here, you know, I was being hit with some of the sin in my own life, and I could feel tears welling up in my eyes as I'm thinking of the things that I'm guilty for, because in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to all of our favorite sins. Like, at some point in that sermon, if you really listen, he speaks to every one of our possible struggles. He talks about anger. He talks about lust. He talks about materialism. And according to the Sermon on the Mount, we are all murderers, and we are all adulterers, and we are all liars. And while 
I, I think that sort of judgment and conviction does flow naturally out of the sermon. I, I don't think that we're meant to stop there. I think when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount and when you stop at a place of judgment or conviction or condemnation, I, I think that we are doing the text a great disservice. Because at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus is trying to set us free. I think in the Sermon on the Mount, he is trying to help us identify our sin. He is trying to help us get to the root of our sin. And then I think he's even to provide, trying to provide us with tools to, with his help, overcome our sin. A lot of people just see the Sermon on the Mount as a, as a series of lofty but unreachable goals. Um, but I got to tell you that to me, it's so much more than that. Because when you combine the power of the cross with the teachings of Christ, I think that's where the real power is. I think that's where true freedom is found. When you combine the power of the Spirit with the commands of Christ and seek to be obedient to His commands, that's where I think true freedom is found. I'm going to get a little theological for a moment, and so I ask you to bear with me, though I think this is important, okay? When I was in divinity school, I read an article by uh, an ethics professor named Glenn Stason that ultimately changed my entire perspective on the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Um, Stason wrote this article. It was published in, in a journal in 2003, and the article, if you ever want to look it up, is called 14 Triads of the Sermon on the Mount. 14 Triads of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this article, Stason encouraged readers to read the Sermon on the Mount uh, to better understand them. He said they can best be read as what he calls transforming triads, a series of transforming triads. Now, I know that language can be a bit confusing, but I'll explain it, and it's going to make more sense in a minute. I hope what he's saying is, is that if you break the Sermon on the Mount down, if you break the text down, as the Bible does, into sections, like a section on anger, section on lust, section on enemy love, he said each section Jesus offers three truths, three statements, and ultimately the three statements are meant to lead to our transformation. They don't just stop with our condemnation, but they go all the way to our transformation. Jesus was teaching using the rule of three. So now I'm going to try to show you what the three parts of this are, okay? Triadic just means three. Uh, they are called transforming triads. Here is what Stason says the three parts of each section contains, okay? The first, he says, is Jesus speaks to traditional traditional forms of piety. And then second, he speaks to cycles of sin that are often at the root of the problem. And then third, he says in each stanza, he offers a transforming initiative the only one of the statements of the stanzas that don't flow in this way is his uh, is Jesus statement on divorce and um, we'll talk about 
why I believe that is more later, but I think that is, is pretty interesting. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, if you break it down into pieces, into stanzas, into series, each one, you can find these three things. The traditional, Jesus speaks to traditional piety. He secondly speaks to the cycles of sin that are often at the root of the problem. And then you get the transforming initiative. That's the third piece. This in each statement is usually the traditional piety is when Jesus says, you've heard it said. And then he says this. And then um, the cycles of sin usually are found when Jesus says, but I say this. And then the transforming initiative is whatever follows after that. And so that's the breakdown. That's why he refers to it as uh, the transforming triad, because ultimately just three pieces, three things that we should learn in each one of these um, series and each one of these stanzas that should, for the people of God, help lead to our transformation. So what I want us to do now is uh, I want y'all to help me, and I want us to try to put this to the test, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next few minutes looking at the section where Jesus talks about anger. And we're going to see if we can identify each of these three three things in that teaching. Then we're going to look at the the section where he speaks about lust, see if we can identify these three things. And then we're going to be talking about what, what can we learn from Jesus in and through them. So if you've got your Bible, go to Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And it should come up on the screen behind me, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Again, as we read, we're looking for what's the traditional form of piety he speaks to, what's the cycle of sin, what's the transforming initiative. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. This is how the text reads. It says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So that's what Jesus says. Using the formula that Stason's kind of given us for understanding this text, what would we say in this text is the traditional form of piety that Jesus speaks to? What is it? Yeah, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Now, what's the cycle of sin that he speaks to that that is possibly at the root of the problem? It's anger. And then what is the transforming initiative that he gives? Anybody? A little bit longer, Ains? Yeah, he, he urges people to be reconciled, to go to people that they have hurt or people who have hurt them, and to be reconciled to them. If we continue to follow in the vein or the thought of the volcano, then it would look something like this. Uh, Murder is the eruption. Anger is the lava boiling at the surface. And reconciliation is how we can achieve peace. Now, some of you may be like me, and uh, anger might be one of your struggles. It is certainly one of mine. 
I remember hearing the comedian uh, some time ago, uh, Bill Burr, was talking about a conversation that he had with his wife. He was out with his wife one day, and something happened, and he just got enraged by it. And his wife said to him, you know, why, what is it about you that makes it to where you can go from zero to ten just like that? And uh, Bill Burr responded to her and said, zero to ten? I started like an eight. He's like, I, I, I walk around ready to be mad about something. It, it's not hard for me. It's never zero to ten. It's like eight to nine, nine to ten. And when he said that, I thought, man, that, that resonates with me a little bit. Okay, I, I feel that because oftentimes I do feel like I walk around with just that uh, inner sort of rage, just, just ready to go. Now, the truth that Jesus speaks to in this text, and I think it's a really powerful one, is that oftentimes our anger is the product of unresolved relational issues. Oftentimes, our anger is the product of unresolved relational issues. This is what I mean by that. It means somebody has hurt us, and we can't let it go, so we take it out on other people. Or, we have hurt somebody, and we can't let it go, and so we take it out on other people. What I want to say to you this morning, church, in terms of the transforming uh, initiative is that if you ever want to experience real peace, like if you ever want to feel that lava calm in you, you're going to have to learn to be a people who know how to apologize and a people who know how to forgive. Because the kingdom of God, it's not made up of perfect people, but it is made up of people who can be wounded and still seek reconciliation who can be hurt and still have a desire to achieve forgiveness. If anger is something that you struggle with, like if it's a problem that you wrestle with, I would encourage you to spend some time self-evaluating today. Like just, just look at your life between you and the Spirit when Cody's playing and when we're praying later and just ask God, God, is there, is there somebody I need to forgive? Or is there somebody that I need to apologize to? Or is... There's something that I need to be let go of. And if he reveals that person to you, then before you drop any money, even a dollar into our offering box, go to them and seek reconciliation. Jesus isn't just concerned with the eruption. He's concerned, man, what's going on? I'm not just, religion concerns itself with murder. Jesus is concerned with the anger. Let's get to the core of the issue and let's work through that. So that's anger. Now let's talk about the fun one. Let's talk about lust. That's the quietest it's ever been in here, okay? I mean, people stop breathing. I might have stopped breathing. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. I, I understand. I want to be clear with you about this, okay? I understand that giving you all this process, boring. It is. Like, I get that. You know, preach it, even preach it. But what I'm telling you is, you get this, I think you have the tools to overcome some stuff that you haven't overcame ever. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But let's talk about lust. Matthew 5, 27 through 30, we're going to do the same thing with this one that we did with the anger one. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In this series of statements that just, Jesus just made, we break it down into that section. What is the traditional form of piety that he speaks to? He speaks to adultery. And what is the vicious sin cycle that is at the core of the problem? Lust. And then what is the transforming initiative that he gives? He says, cut out, cut out your eye. Cut, cut, cut off your hand. Find, ultimately he's saying, I believe, find the source of the problem and remove it. Now, if we continue to think about this in terms with that image of the volcano in mind, adultery is the eruption. Lust is the lava stirring at the core. And cutting off the mode and means of our lust is the only way we will achieve peace. You know, we live in a culture of objectification. We live in a culture of objectification in almost every way. Like, we are all guilty, every person in here. We're guilty of taking people who have been created in the image of God, and uh, we flatten them. God has made them in really beautiful and complex ways, and we simplify them. Do you know how much it must infuriate God when we take a person that he has created in his image, and we just try to narrow them down to either their best or worst trait? Every person who has ever been made, God breathed his breath into them. How dare we mock his breath? Every person that God has ever made, ever created, he made for him and for his glory and for his pleasure. And when we lust over people, we are putting ourselves on the throne and we're saying that those people were simply made for our pleasure. In this way, Lust is a form of idolatry. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, I think Paul gives Timothy the best truth that, uh, that I've ever really seen when it comes to talking about lust. But in, in, uh, it's in, yeah, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in that text, uh, Paul urged religious leaders. This is what he told them. He said, I want you to look at older men in the church as if they're your father's. And I want you to look at younger men in the church as if they're your brothers. And I want you to look at older women in the church as if they're your mothers. And I want you to look at younger women in the church as if they're your sisters. And he said, in this way, you can maintain purity. And I believe that that is, I believe it's great advice. Church, if, uh, if lust is an area of your life that you struggle, I would encourage you today to take a few minutes and just have some time of self-evaluation. Like, look at your life and, and ask yourself, you know, what are, where are the places you go? What are the habits that you perform that most lead to objectification or that most lead to lust? If you look at porn on your phone, get rid of it, get a flip phone. If every time you go to the gym, you lust over other men and women you see at the gym, cancel your gym membership. If, if you find every time that you get online or go into a social media website, 
you're finding yourself envious of the life that other people have, jealous of how beautiful their life looks, compares to yours, delete the apps. I mean, the only way for us to deal with this problem, I think Jesus is speaking to us, saying this one's so significant, you're going to have to go to the core. Like it can only be resolved by going to the place and cut, you got to cut, you want to take it, you got to cut the tree down by the roots. Now the funny thing for me about this is some of you have struggled with this problem for like five years and yet you are still convinced that one day you're going to have the willpower to overcome it. Like in your mind, you're like, I haven't been able to get it in ever but the day's coming when I'm going to be able to, uh, to beat this. Newsflash, you won't. That, that day is, is not coming. I would encourage you, stop trusting in your own will and start living according to his way. Stop trusting in your willpower to be, and start living in his way. Start taking his advice. The kingdom of God is made up of all sorts of different people. People of all different shapes, all different sizes, all different colors, and they all belong. And we have to get beyond this thing where we objectify people, and we've got to get to the point where we see people as our brothers and sisters, as people who are all part of the same family. We have to learn to see one another through the lens of Christ, not through the lens of our lust. You know, church, why not, why not deal with these problems now before the eruption? Why not seek the reconciliation now before the eruption comes? Why not to be clean? Why not, why not purify yourself from the lust before the eruption comes? Most people only focus on the eruption, but Jesus is concerned with the pressure building at the core. Two last things I want to say, and then I'm finished. Here's the first one. First one is, um, good news is, if uh, we haven't talked about your sin yet, we will, because Jesus does, okay? So if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't, I don't get angry, we'll get to you. I promise you that. And that's the, that is the, to me, I mean, that really is the beautiful thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that he, I mean, he, it's, he goes in on everybody, okay? Um, and so uh, I would encourage you that the Sunday that I read through the, the whole text two weeks ago, I know for a fact that that Sunday as I was reading through the verses, there's some of you in here that as I got to a certain stanza or a certain section, that it jumped off the page to you. Like you heard it and you thought, that's mine. That's, he's speaking to me now. If that's the case, then what I'm encouraging you to do is take this process, take Stacen's pro- process, apply it to that particular section, find the transforming initiative, and then get to work doing that thing. Okay, I don't have to. Once we talk about this, I don't have to explain it for you. Okay, put it to use outside of here. Um, That is my recommendation. And here's the second one. This is the other thing that I want you to be looking for the whole time that we're going through this sermon, because I think it's incredibly beautiful. Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount right at the outset of his ministry. And so as he's speaking this Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he is setting the kingdom ethic for the kingdom of God. He is setting the, the ethical nature for what people who were a part of his kingdom is supposed to look like. So ultimately, when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've worked all the way through those three pieces, and we found the transforming initiative in every one of those things, what we're supposed to see are people who treat one another as the way people treat each other in heaven. 
Like we're supposed to see, we're supposed to be a reflection of that ethic and that glory in the world. And so what I'm saying is this, uh, we are supposed to be a people like us. We're supposed to be a people who know how to apologize and who know how to forgive. We are supposed to be a people who constantly and consistently can be wounded and who still seek reconciliation. We are supposed to be a people, and the world is desperate for it, that do not lust after one another. But when we look into each other's eyes, we see moms and dads, and we see brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be a people who let our yes be yes, and our no be no. We're supposed to be a people who learn how to love our enemies and to love them well. Each one of these sections, when Jesus speaks to that transforming initiative, he is setting up the ethical nature of the kingdom. saying, this is what my family is supposed to look like. I know the world out there doesn't look like this, but this is what the kingdom looks like. I desperately want to be a part of a group of people like that. I, I I want to be a part of a group of people like that. I want to lead a church that looks like that. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. God, help us to work through the things that we need to work through. I pray for those who, when I mentioned the word anger, immediately knew I was going to be talking to them. You were too. I pray for those who, when I mentioned the word lust, immediately knew that I was going to be talking to them. And you were too. Help them to overcome. God, there is a power. There's a power by way of the cross. There is power by the way of the Spirit, there is an overcoming power that you have given your people that we uh, far too often do not tap into. Help us to find it and to experience it today. Help us to be a people who don't just hear your word, but who do it. And so when we talk about these transforming initiatives and we talk about the things that we ought to do because you say, hey, the people who do this, it's like wise people that build their house on a rock. I pray that we would be those kind of wise people who we would leave and go, man, I got some stuff. I'm about to go to U.S. Cellular and I'm about to change into a phone. I, 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 I'm about to, to leave this place and I'm going to make a phone call that I should have made a long time ago to apologize to somebody. I'm going to let some stuff go that I haven't let go in a long time. God, help your people to work through stuff that they need to work through. Help me to work through the stuff that I need to work through. Uh, we, we want to see uh, your kingdom here. We want to love each other the way that you have loved us. We want to be transformed, and thus, the people that we spend time with, we see and experience their transformation as well. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.